Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today in light of the very distressing developments in India that continue around the world with Arjun Jayadev, who's a member of the INET family for a very long time and uh, a professor at uh, Premji University in Bangalore, India. And we're here also with Achel Prabhala, who runs Access IBSA, which is an activist organization and very sophisticated organization about the dissemination of medicines in places like India, South Africa, and has, in my opinion, great insights about what kind of intellectual property rights regime would, how do I say, facilitate the common good rather than the profitability of narrow segments of production. So thank you both for joining me, gentlemen. I think this is a very uh, stressful and critical time. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. So Arjun, let's talk about what might have inspired Joe Biden, where the scale of the emergency. I know John Kerry was down in Delhi uh, somewhat for some time just before. Uh, but what, what inspired this change in the regime of honoring intellectual property rights uh, that was grounded in India? So, uh, thanks, Rob. Uh, you know, I think um, the Indian case, uh, you know, has really shown what can happen if you do not really think about uh, vaccines and medicines for all during a pandemic when you have um, uh, you know something that's obviously uh, a public good a global public good which is global health um, when it's uh, treated as if it's not a global public good and treated as a private uh, commodity uh, what kind of hell can break loose for the whole world um, just for context as uh, many of you uh, and many of the viewers will know, India has been having uh, uh, daily new cases of over 300,000 uh, a day for at least two weeks now. And that's a vast underestimate um, of uh, the infection rate. Everyone thinks that it could be uh, an order of magnitude higher. And on top of that, uh, we've had recorded deaths of about 4,000 a day at this point, uh, which is, again, uh, possibly uh, you know, very, very highly uh, undercounted. Um, so this is a kind of uh, uh, you know, situation which could happen to any country which doesn't have uh, vaccination uh, rollout fast enough. And of course, there's also the concern about, about mutants and uh, mutant strains which can uh, evade the kind of vaccines that are already there. So in some sense, uh, India is, if you will, uh, uh, the canary in the mine uh, of what could happen if you don't actually treat um, medicine and vaccines as a global public good. Um, I should say the the Biden administration's decision uh, wasn't really simply just about the Indian case. It's been coming after a very very long, uh, I think, public health battle. Uh, you know, which is which really started, I would say, last year when a lot of activists, uh, people like Achal, but you know, huge number of people across the world who, um, I think, quite. Uh, early and correctly diagnosed the fact that you need to maximize the potential for everybody to get a, a cure or a vaccine and to share that knowledge, right? So there was, um, there was a push for a common technology access pool that was shut down and then there was pressure brought to bear um, through the WTO by India and South Africa to have a regime in which uh, IP was suspended during the, the, uh, the pandemic, right? Uh, and I mean, we can talk about why it was necessary. It, it, I, I happen to think it was an extremely necessary step, but not a sufficient step. But I'm sure to whatever extent uh, the Indian context uh, may have helped precipitate you know, some changes, um, it was only one of a set of pressures that were, were brought to bear on the Biden administration. But uh, 
be that as it may, it's quite momentous, it's quite uh, remarkable and uh, people like Achel or even me who've been working on this for uh, many, many years are uh, quite pleasantly surprised that at least we've reached this point. Where we go from here now is really the key question. Achel, uh, at this juncture in India, I mean, I, I gather your, how would I say, awareness of these processes of the basic science, the development, dissemination, structure of intellectual property rights, negotiation across countries, all of these things we could fill in. But what, what, uh, what you might call, what created, in your mind, the distress? What was the failing in the system's design that was previously implemented that brought this crisis to such a, what you might call, profound level? Rob, you know, the one useful thing we could do is go back to last year. Um, and in fact, Arjun, you and I had a conversation last year. I think right. it was a little later in the year. But when we talked, uh, there was a different atmosphere. And I think when exactly the same time last year, or a little earlier, actually, March last year, when the pandemic was declared, mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. remember thinking at that time that my job was to try to make sure that whatever exceptions we created for this pandemic would survive uh, the pandemic itself, meaning that they would apply to epidemics. Uh, an epidemic is a massive uh, health problem in a country or in a set of countries, right? And a pandemic is when it's global. And so that we've had in the past problems with HIV AIDS epidemics or hepatitis C epidemics, and they're never treated in the same way because they happen in poor countries or they happen in a few countries, right? And so I thought that, of course, we'd have a whole range of exceptions for the pandemic because this is something that's affecting the economy catastrophically. At that time last year, it was affecting uh, lives in Europe and the United States enormously. And it didn't seem like the same kinds of solutions that had not worked for other life-saving medicines would be uh, promoted in this pandemic because they didn't seem like a solution. And then very quickly last year, I think I realized that not only would I not be fighting for exceptions to be made permanent, I would be fighting and we would all be struggling to get any kinds of allowances within the space of the pandemic. So this wasn't going to be treated any differently, but in fact was going to be a little worse. And this became clear towards the end of last year when uh, Pfizer and Moderna rolled out their vaccines. Um, when it became very clear that there was an enormous outpouring of goodwill towards these companies for bringing vaccines so quickly to the market, uh, erasing somehow the billions of dollars in commitments that they received from you, essentially Rob, the US taxpayer, or from the European taxpayer, uh, and then somehow turning this into a miracle of private capital and private enterprise, ignoring both the fact of the public funding that went into these vaccines, as well as the fact that these companies were serving very few people beyond the 20% who live in the richest countries on earth, who they were supplying vaccines to. And they still are, by the way, six and a half months down the line. So this, this became an extraordinary problem. So the, the, the original sin uh, really goes back to the 1980s and the Bayh-Dole Act, unfortunately, and it's, it's that horrible, meaning that that's really when uh, the events uh, were set in motion for what we see today, which is not just the allowance of a sort of privatization of essential life-saving pharmaceuticals, despite public money being used to create them, but in fact an encouragement of it. So meaning almost like a way to kind of you know, provide cover for what happened in the 1980s in the United States. This, an idea of Reagan-esque uh, small government, which almost meant that you had to obscure the public funding that was going in to keep the private pharmaceutical industry running, right? Um, which is exactly what happened and that intensified. And I think what we've seen now is a culmination of that. We're at the peak of that idea that regardless of what taxpayers have contributed once towards a vaccine, um, they will contribute again to buy that vaccine and will have absolutely no say in who gets access to that vaccine outside the United States and Europe. So it's actually being denied. We, we don't have, of course, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines here in India, and we won't probably for a long time. But the point is they're being denied to us because uh, uh, they're being denied to us on your behalf without your participation. I don't think you, Rob Johnson, want Arjun and I not to get these vaccines, right? And yet that is in effect, what's happening. Yeah. Exactly. Now, 
I think that the way um, the there are a couple of things that happened last year which I think went uh, uh, really awry and we we didn't pay enough attention to them while they were happening. So while a lot of people were screaming and shouting uh, for uh, uh, for public solutions and for uh, for common uh, technology pools and for other kinds of cooperative efforts that would create vaccines, um, what happened was that the enormous scale of investment by the US and EU into the pharmaceutical industry to create these vaccines meant that the Western vaccine manufacturers had an edge over even Russian, Chinese and Indian manufacturers, not to mention Cuban and Vietnamese and Thai developers of a coronavirus vaccine as well. So what happened last year is that among these eight or nine vaccine candidates that looked like they were the leading ones, uh, only two created any semblance of access outside this 20% of the world. And those two were AstraZeneca and Novavax. And we know what happened after that. AstraZeneca came to market, not yet in the United States, by the way, but in, US, in the US and in Europe. And Novavax is, is nowhere near coming to market. So essentially what Western, what the Western, what I will call the kind of philanthropy industrial complex did was to set up uh, a means of access for 500 million people, which is a billion doses, spread across, however, 92 countries with 4 billion people. So it's, it's the equivalent of flinging one vaccine in a room of eight desperate people and then kind of wondering why it's not working out well, right? And so that's exactly what happened, is that there's been a mad scramble for those 1 billion doses. Now, with India, it's even more complicated because we're producing all of them. They're not for us. They were never for us. They were contracted, 50 to 60% of those vaccine doses were contracted to the other 91 countries who are depending on them, which have not got any of them. So, despite all the boasts of, um, of essentially the, the person who runs uh, this philanthropic industrial system, Bill Gates last year, that the COVAX facility, which is this, um, uh, oddly cobbled together mechanism of the World Health Organization, uh, something called Gavi, which is the Vaccines Alliance, an organization that Gates founded, and the genuinely ridiculously named Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which uh, honestly just makes me uh, wonder who thought of it each time I say it, uh, put together this plan where they promised poor countries that they would save them, that they, that they had their backs, right? The plan then uh, downsized towards the start of 2021, and they decided to say, instead of saving everybody completely, they would provide enough vaccines for 20% of uh, the population of these poor countries. So it, in this year, and now we're in, the, we're in May, we're almost in the middle of 2021, and the number of vaccine doses that the COVAX facility has actually sent countries like Nigeria or Ghana um, together is in the region of about 40 million doses, right? 10 million doses of which actually the Indian government took back. Uh, since about March, the Indian government has stopped the export of any vaccines. And so we're essentially taking vaccines that don't necessarily belong to us because we can, they're being produced within our borders to, to, to serve the needs of the insanely horrendous surge in new cases and deaths that we're seeing in this country and living through. So by uh, uh, an astonishing combination of incredible gross criminal incompetence on the part of uh, the philanthropic system in connivance with the Western pharmaceutical industry and on, on this side at home, the equally criminal incompetence of the Indian government, which had absolutely no right to wait until January of 2021 to seemingly discover what the Indian population was, we now have a situation where not only does India have no vaccines, I, it took me eight hours uh, two weeks ago when we, you know, when we still had some vaccines to get my parents an appointment for their second dose. Um, not only do we not have vaccines, but also does no other country who was relying on those vaccines um, having any. And now the estimates are that they won't get any until the end of this year. So if you're Nigeria or you're Ghana, you're stuck with enough vaccines for just 1% of your population until the end of this year, right? So essentially it was uh, this uh, unbelievably calamitous meeting of, uh, in, for, of, of, of mutual incompetences which created uh, the mess that we're in today. 
let me uh, try to disentangle things for our, our audience here just a little bit. Uh, people can talk about what is needed in full scope and what are the blockages. One might be not recognizing the need so they're late to the game. Another might be intellectual property rights protection. If that was suspended much earlier, the breadth and, how do I say, dissemination, both breadth and depth within any region would be much higher. Uh, then there are other things like uh, people's fear of a new vaccine. In some places, people won't take them. But it seems to me, uh, I guess, and then I guess the last would be the gestation period for production. Is it on the way, but late, but will reach scale? So where, where are the, how, how, how would I say, in disaggregating where the blockages are? What, what do you see as central to the failure thus far? So Arjun, uh, and you just talked about the TRIPS waiver that Biden, the administration signaled its support for. Um, now, that TRIPS waiver was proposed by, the, uh, by a very talented South African diplomat called Mustakim Dagama with the support of the Indian uh, delegation to Geneva uh, to the WTO in October. Arjun and I actually wrote about that with Dean Baker in the New York Times about a month later, right? For the Biden administration to signal the support for beginning talks for a narrower scoped TRIPS waiver proposal in May, uh, it's, it's sort of absurd that we are celebrating that, and I was too, but the fact is that it happened uh, uh, nine months, uh, six months after it, after the, the demand was made in a pandemic in which 4,000 people are dying a day in India and 15,000 people are dying a, a day worldwide, right? And in this pandemic, not only is that TRIPS waiver being um, narrowed down much more than it needs to be, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why this is, is important. So the Biden administration wants the TRIPS waiver proposal uh, is supporting it only as far as vaccine patents go, right? Now, the problem is that you have treatments, for instance, which are also patented, which seemingly the Biden administration doesn't want to cover. You have downstream patents on equipment to make vaccines which are patented. Now, uh, do, is that included in a, you know, in a vaccine waiver? We don't understand, right? And nobody understands that. Now, the other aspect that's a little perverse about this is that they're saying that we will have a text to study uh, by the 3rd of December. So, so what they're essentially saying is this: these are extraordinary times which call for extraordinary measures. And given the urgency of the 4,000 deaths a day in India and 15,000 deaths a day worldwide, not only have we taken six months to respond to this extremely reasonable proposal will take another six months to decide how to move it forward, right? And and you can just imagine what this sounds like when, you, you know, you're like Arjun or I, who are actually living through this insanity. So the, 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 the situation is this, Rob, in a nutshell, to go back to your original question, is that we simply don't have enough licenses for uh, good vaccines that we know work in the world. And that's for a combination of two things. Um, there are good Russian and Chinese vaccines, uh, one of which Sinopharm, the Sinopharm Beijing vaccine, which is a vaccine produced by a state-owned Chinese company, just received uh, something called WHO certification. So the WHO runs a scheme by which they evaluate vaccines around the world and then uh, provide a kind of global safety and quality certificate, right? For lack of a better phrase. And they just did that with one of these Chinese vaccines out. But the Chinese and the Russian vaccines suffered all of last year from geopolitics, essentially. And so while they, they, were, they were hobbled right from the start by accusations of political meddling and influence and not working and just a range of other things which personally outraged me because I thought that whatever you feel about the, the incredible injustices that the Chinese government and the Russian government heap upon you know, LGBTQ people in Russia or Uyghurs, among others, in China, there is, uh, we have to have a rational understanding that vaccine efficacy is a question of science and is somewhat separate from the worst excesses of the state, right? Like, I feel like I don't associate the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines with Ivanka Trump, you know, and in the same way, I would ask that, you, you know, I think that the Sputnik V vaccine should not be associated with uh, what Vladimir Putin is doing in Chechnya. Now, 
That didn't happen though and so they were hobbled and yet what they did was to make great inroads in middle income countries as well as some poor countries. So, you know, vast swathes of the world, right, 30% of the world, you know, all of Latin America, North Africa, the Arab states, the reason that they've survived this entire year is because of Chinese and Russian vaccines. That is the only reason that they have any semblance of normalcy. And in fact, you know, the only thing saving Brazil from almost total apocalypse is uh, Sinovac, which is the other of the Chinese vaccines that's up for approval at the WHO this week. So those vaccines were hobbled, right? And yet, because they offered their technology, including to companies in India and, and, and the United Arab Emirates and elsewhere, there are a range of different vaccine manufacturing sites that sprung up around this available technology. The hunger by both uh, governments who suddenly recognized the need to have the security of vaccine production in their country, as well as private capital around the world, which recognized a commercial opportunity in these vaccines, meant that you now have one of the four Cuban vaccines being developed under production in Iran, right? So there's this range of unprecedented partnerships and uh, new, a whole new vaccine manufacturing movement, right? The Western vaccines were completely excluded uh, from any, from participating in these benefits by the people who hold their monopolies. Now, if they were to open up in the same way as the Chinese and Russians have, you would see an even greater interest because fairly or unfairly, they're more desirable. Everybody wants a Western vaccine, including in non-Western places like where I live or Russia or China. So the reason that they need to do all of this faster, including the TRIPS waiver, is that that is complicated because not only do you... So I, I, the way I think about it is that they need to share the vaccine recipe, but the vaccine recipe consists of two ingredients. And the first is just the legal rights to make the vaccine. But the second is a manual as to how you make the vaccine, right? The vaccine technology. There's a third problem in this pandemic, which is that all raw material suppliers and equipment suppliers have suddenly found that they have to cope with unprecedented demand. First to supply Western companies and now to supply uh, more and more people who are making these vaccines, right? So then there's a third problem that has to be sorted out, which is to work with uh, raw material suppliers and equipment manufacturers in the vaccine supply chain to increase potential supply to identify alternatives that can work just as well. So it, not, nothing is impossible, but it just has to be worked upon. And all these three things have to be worked upon immediately. If they were, however, magically solved tomorrow, Rob, so just imagine, right, that we could magically create this momentum tomorrow and get technology transferred, let's say, from the Biden administration for the Moderna and J&J vaccines, which they funded 100%, right? Then we would have the billions of doses that we needed in four or five months, right? Short of that happening, however, we're pushing out this solution and, and our exit from this pandemic uh, fatally every single day and week that we delay this solution. Uh, it's, you know, Anshul's absolutely right. You, you asked about what are the constraints, Rob. You know, I think this is a complex, uh, you know, OR problem. There are many, many uh, constraints. Now, the obvious solution is to release all of them. You know, I think one of the things that people have argued is that uh, you know, it's not okay, not, not enough to do an IP waiver, you know, it really doesn't matter. But the point is that um, all of these are constraints, all of them have to be worked on. What also seems fairly obvious to me is that um, this is a situation in which the normal expectation that a price mechanism will do it is just false and wrong. Uh, it's a situation similar to a war situation in which you actually need to bring in resources where it's all about quantity and not about prices um, and so on. And uh, it's interesting that within the Western countries that, you know, let's say the US or the UK, they were able to take on that view that it was a war, right? I mean, it's there's lockdown, there's uh, the Defense Production Act that's brought into place, uh, but there's somehow a lack of ability to realize that this is a global problem and it has to be a fought on that front. And that I think is really central. So all the constraints have to be released simultaneously to sort of buttress what Achal is saying. In the uh, question of the manufacturing, the building of plant capacity. What's, what is involved there, Achel? What, what do you have to construct in order to, if you have the manual and the property rights, produce things? So one of the interesting things that's going on, Rob, uh, which I've tried, been trying to battle against, is a number of people within the pharmaceutical industry who are saying that these miraculous Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which use the revolutionary revolutionary mRNA technology 
uh, is so new that they're harder to make, right? So mRNA is this uh, new vaccine technology that's the basis of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And the interesting thing about it is that it's not like the older vaccines because it doesn't have biology. So, you know, the, the squiggly things, the viruses and the proteins that we put into all vaccines that we've had so far are absent in this mRNA vaccine. It's a chemical product. Now, because it's a chemical product, it's actually easier to make. It's faster to make and it's cheaper to make, unbelievably, right? Uh, so the, the most advanced vaccine manufacturing that exists in the West is actually the simplest. Now, uh, that, that's not the impression you'll get if you were to listen to the makers of this vaccine or other people in that, uh, in that ecosystem, but it's, it's still true. Now, the people who can make this vaccine and have that capacity, though they would need guidance, they've never done it before, so they'll need a little help, they'll need the manual, right? Those uh, companies in India, they number uh, over 200 because any pharmaceutical company that makes chemistry, chemical pharmaceuticals, but also makes injectable drugs, right, has potentially the capacity to make an mRNA vaccine. Uh, the older vaccines, for instance, any uh, firm in India that makes biologics, which are a category of complex pharmaceuticals that include vaccines, um, can make a vaccine, whether or not they've done so before. And in fact, that's what's happening in India at the moment. There are six firms who are simultaneously um, making the Sputnik V vaccine from Russia, which is exactly the same platform as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine would be much better for us. Why? Not because it's Western and people might want it more. It's a one-dose vaccine, you know. So in poor countries, that saves you such an enormous amount of time. Now, we would love to have that. We know that there are firms capable of making it because we know who's making the Sputnik vaccine, and that's dozens of companies. Kazakhstan is producing the Sputnik V vaccine drop. So just to give you an idea, nobody in the world until now thought that they should be getting vaccines from Kazakhstan, but you can, right? Um, so th there's this, this this idea of capacity as being some kind of static thing unless you know you have a, 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 a huge factory that has neon a neon sign saying we make vaccines that that they you know that it doesn't exist um is is, is really uh bizarre the way that it's bandied around there are lots of companies who see who have the potential to make older and newer vaccines and are doing so there are 24 registered vaccine manufacturers in this country sorry there are 21 actually in india by at last count um, about uh, three of them at the moment are engaged in any way in COVID vaccine production. Why? Right? Uh, you know, we should have many, many more of those companies making as many vaccines as possible if we are facing a sh shortage and others are. The more we can solve this shortage in India, the more we solve shortages elsewhere in the world, right? We, we just sort of ease up the supply chain everywhere. But lastly, it's not just India. So this is true in Turkey, this is true in Brazil, uh, this is true in Indonesia. All of these countries have these private-public partnerships making Chinese or Russian vaccines. They've been doing this over a year now. So there's lots and lots of capacity that's literally been woken up from a slumber around the world. Now the US government just needs to give it something to do. Yeah, there's a lot of economics here, and I, I want to start with the place that's we might call furthest away from the distress in my heart, which is just a simple question. When these pharmaceutical companies try to constrict dissemination when the demand worldwide is so urgent and it's spawning new laboratories and different companies around the world. Aren't they shooting themselves in the foot? They're trying to squeeze everybody in one game and they're creating a whole world of supply competitors in the medium term. Isn't that a foolish strategy on their part? So this is an interesting thing, right? So the question is, why not just license? Why not hold control and, and you know, for example, license your drug service? Is that what you're saying, Rob? I mean, uh, to, to expand yeah, or, capacity. So, so I think there's a couple of things here, Rob. I mean, th the first is, um, you know, just from pure economics principles, once the first copy of the drug is made, uh, social, social welfare is maximized if you then can produce at cost, right? So price is equal to marginal cost. This is an extremely ma mainstream argument. I think nobody would argue with that. The whole question is how do you, how do you socialize or, or, or make up for that first copy cost? And the answer is it's already been done, right? I mean, with Moderna, we paid for the first, we, uh, you know, American taxpayers, whoever Tax it is. Taxpayers or, yeah, yeah right. I've, yeah, yeah. Rob, yeah. you, okay? So, so that's, that, you know, that has been done. So in that sense, 
there's an obligation from a social welfare perspective to, to really open it up to competition, right? There, there's absolutely no reason for us to be paying twice in that sense, right? Uh, similarly with Pfizer and advanced market commitments, there's a way that the first copy costs have already been uh, handled. So now the question is, uh, how do we maximize production? Um, clearly, there's a reason to hold on to intellectual property, uh, you know, because in some sense, uh, remember the drug companies, uh, and Achal, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the decision on when the pandemic ends is not something that we really have full control over, and if they decide that the pandemic ends in June and they re reclaim, you know, the IP, um, uh, when you need a booster, booster shot and so on, uh, they certainly want to continue to have control uh, over that, right? Um, now the question of why not license, uh, this is actually an interesting question uh, from what uh, I understand, you know, there have been newspaper articles where people have reached out but, uh, but there's, you know, been no interest uh, in licensing and that's something which I don't have full, full knowledge about and maybe Achil can uh, speak to that but one of the things that, uh, that the companies say now is, you know, the constraint is not uh, at all IP, it really is, uh, you know, our technological expertise and so on, you know. And our common friend Dean Baker has a wonderful retort to this. He says, you know, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to pay the Moderna engineer's chief engineer and the Pfizer chief engineer a million dollars a month. Just tell us what that technology is. And you think that that technology won't be up and coming in three months after that? So in some sense, you know, this is, as Achal uh, said right at the outset, and I still believe, we're still living with the uh, remnants of a system that was really extractive, really nasty. Uh, and set for a different world, and we've not been able to move quickly enough into this world. So that, I think, is, is, is the problem, Rob. You know, in terms of economics, we, we're fighting uh, with the tools for a wrong, the wrong economic system. Uh, the other question I had that pertains to economics is, comes kind of from, is crystallized in an adage that uh, Muhammad Alarian offered to our global commission. He just said, essentially, this is crazy. None of us are safe until we're all safe. And I, I think of things like, what is the lobbying enterprise for the airline industry doing? Because the, the pharmaceutical constriction, the lack of spread is shutting down the airline industry for even longer and deeper because people can't travel. It's that kind of global flow that we had is not going to be present as long as people are terrified. I look at the, uh, so the public good, you said me, this is a taxpayer, I pay for this thing. Well, I want to pay for this thing and be protected, not pay for it, get some shots, and then watch the whole world melt, and watch variants created and come back and get me even though I've got them. So there is a disservice that's being done by not recognizing that this is a public good as you've said, it's not an epidemic, it's a pandemic, but it's not a private property-like thing. It's about we, not about me. Why can't, why can't we sell that to the world? I mean, maybe, you know, you've got to be, how do I say, taught the hard way. But isn't this relatively obvious? So Rob, why don't you, I mean, this is a time when maybe you can uh, talk about your favorite poem by the other Mohammed. Uh, you know, and uh, so maybe you can just say that and then I can, what, what was it? Uh, which one was <laughs> By it? By Muhammad Ali. Oh, the Mo oh Muhammad yeah. Ali yeah. Me, we. <laughs> I said that's the, that's <laughs> that's the right. pendulum in which all social science exists. Me, we. Right. Yeah. So, yes, so I think that's really profound in that sense, right? Uh, in, in, especially in this sense. So clearly something which has positive externalities like a vaccine, we really, really want to, to uh, scale up as much as possible. Um, and clearly, you know, uh, the loss of welfare, if you, or just money, if you will want to talk about that, just crudely, is uh, orders of magnitude above, uh, you know, anything that, uh, uh, you know, it, we're talking about in terms of costs, right? Um, so yes, so clearly from an economic sense and uh, even from a welfare and ethical sense, we need to think about this as being we, not me. Uh, I think that, as I said, the systems that we have in place takes time for systems to change, right? Uh, and uh, 
you know, unless there's pressure, there's no, no kind of reason for people to change. But I have to say, and this is something that we've known historically, uh, there is a certain sense of concern that people often have only for their smaller circles. So there's a, there's a belief, and you can see already at the CDC having their mask, uh, the mask removal thing, that, that the West is, is done with it, right? And so, you know, we'll get to the, the rest of the world when it does. And, I, and selfishly for them, I hope that's true, that there are no variants coming back to, to haunt them. But we can't be sure about that, right? Uh, similarly, let me just say in India, you know, uh, we often take a look at the cities of what's happening in the cities and we say okay the city numbers are going down but what's happening in the rural areas is apocalyptic right now villages are being wiped out we know this um so yeah so it's, it's a question both if you will of economics and also expanding our moral sensibilities yeah Rachel, what are your thoughts well you know there's a funny thing going on which is uh about four months ago uh when the pfizer and moderna shots came out the uh, pfizer actually applied to india for a license to sell its vaccine here in the private market um, they were denied that on the grounds of uh, uh, the Indian government at that time wanting them to run a small trial and they refused. Uh, but I remember having a talk with a, uh, a very wealthy businessman who said, look, what's, what's wrong with getting all the wealthy people vaccinated uh, through the Pfizer vaccine if they're willing to sell it here? Um, and the conversation I had with him, I think, at that time was uh, to say, uh, to, to, to plead the case for the fact that uh, when you have a health system that works for both rich and poor people and everyone in between, then the rich people, because of the kind of ignominy, ignominy that they feel in a country like India at bad service or at, 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 a, you know, at a bad system, actually work very hard to make that system better for everybody else, right? And so the moment you create this uh, super highway for wealthy people to be vaccinated in this country, you're going to have a much worse public health system uh, or that is not being in any way monitored by uh, middle class and rich people because they're not participating in it. Um, so I think very much the same kind of feeling um, that is what we feel about in terms of us not getting enough vaccines. So we have about 3% of our population fully vaccinated as compared to about 30% in the US and the UK, which are now returning to normalcy slowly. Um, but the same kind of injustice that's being heaped upon India by having the United States vaccinate itself fully before anything else happens is also a feeling that many wealthy people and middle class people would prefer to have within this country in India. So I think it's, it's quite a natural tendency, this idea that if you can do uh, take care of yourself, whoever yourself is and whoever we are first, then it really doesn't matter when we get to the next lot, right? In terms of the boosters and variants, I really wish it were true that uh, there is a grave threat facing the United States or the UK from variants that come out of unvaccinated populations, right? But the I think that the reality might be a little more sinister than that, which is that I think that there is a mild threat uh, and that mild threat will actually be met by continued demand for boosters and reformulated vaccines that Pfizer is already in the business of selling in large quantities over the next three or four years to countries like the US and the EU, right? So in a way, weirdly, the fact that we're unvaccinated in India and elsewhere is actually a very good future profit signal for companies that make vaccines in the West. This is very perverse, but it's true. Your point, however, Rob, about the airline industry, for instance, not wanting or not getting into the game to fight for global access to vaccines is incredibly strong. I'd really never thought of that. But you know, when you think of the, uh, the stronger economic interests outside the pharmaceutical industry for global vaccinations, right? Just in terms of having their economy run again, because, okay, let's take Emirates Airlines. Great for them if the US and Europe have a travel bubble over the summer holidays, right? So that, you know, People who are equally vaccinated in societies where we have vaccines can then mingle together and fly those airlines. But what about the rest of the world, right? I mean, they're going to have no business, essentially, in the parts of the world that they probably earn predominant revenue from. Uh, that would go for all airlines, including Western airlines, right? And so that's an incredibly interesting argument as to why the other industries, because there are lots of really powerful industries, except for maybe uh, Silicon Valley, which doesn't really care, I suppose, and in fact, probably wants us to have a pandemic a little longer so that we all watch a little more Netflix and, 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 and <laughs> buy things. Sorry, I'm just being perverse. No, I, I, you know, I don't mean that they <laughs> actually do. But I'm just saying that 
many it, it's it is in the narrow short term long term economic interests of the largest section of the economy the largest section of the industrial economy for every one of us to get vaccinated right and that's not honestly something that i thought about from that perspective but i yes i don't know why they're not asking for it more seriously it, it's a good question it's a really good question arjun do you have uh, thoughts in this realm i i think rob um Again, you know, I think to whatever extent um, we think about these things, we underestimate inertia. Uh, and, uh, you know, just the fact of long-standing networks, we know about the lobbying networks, we know about, you know, just how powerful that particular lobby has been in the U.S. forever, right? So I, I, it, would be, it would be naive to assume that, that would, those networks would dissolve overnight. Um, so in that sense, there probably is, you know, a, a sort of strong um, real politic going on behind there that we, we don't have full understanding of. Someone like Tom Ferguson would probably be, you know, very clear about something like this. Um, that may be some of it. Uh, I, you know, so combination of inertia, combination of uh, existing networks. Um, uh, I do think, though, that, you know, uh, the, the sort of larger pivot that we're going to have to get to at some point or the other is that um, if we do want to think of ourselves as a global economy, uh, we really have to start moving into thinking about global public goods. Again, when we talk about um, uh, the cyclone and, and climate change, uh, there's going to be uh, so many of these things coming at us in the next 10 years. And hopefully this will be, in, well, you know, we, we, we talked about hope and diagnosis. Hopefully this will be a place where actually people realize that you really can't go it alone beyond a certain point. So. That's where I would sort of leave it. It's almost uh, ironic to say that perhaps the pandemic is unmasking things. Uh, it is clearly the case that the inadequacy of what, what I'll call our mental habits, which inform our structures and our institutions and some of that resistance to change, are, are still quite in the way. The idea that, uh, you know, I, in America, I've always been quite unsettled by the notion that freedom is to carry a weapon, but there's no uh, counterbalancing freedom to be uh, unafraid that you can shoot me or protected from that. So there's that's this me-we dilemma. But the idea that, that somehow... Lawyers are talking now about when people go back to work that you can't ask people to be vaccined. Well, I mean, you can't ask them not to be higher risk to all their colleagues. They, they, I just don't, un I don't understand how habit interferes with the vision of the challenge that's before us. But I, I'll refer to one of my earlier podcasts, a man named Eugene McCarroher. He wrote a book called The Enchantments of Mammon, and how after science and decentralized societies, what you might call displaced religion as the focal point, that we kind of sacralized markets as this, how do I say, structure that leads to individual autonomy and just rewards and all these kinds of things. I guess, Arjun, when you write your textbook, you can't have externalities and public goods being a footnote in chapter 37. This is, this is front and center. And I think climate change, it's also front and center. Uh, I, I just, I don't, that's why I said, kind of being silly, an unmasking, as, a, as we're all asked to wear a mask, we're unmasking the flaws in our social concept. And I think the... Uh, work that you do, Achel, is such a bright light on the specifics of the failings that are unfolding right now. I think it's very important. It's very important to illuminate, and it's very important to go beyond. INET, I think, is in the world of challenging the resistance of thought to evolving. But there are a lot more pieces to it related to activism and related to political representation and related to understanding in the, in the depth that you do what's happening in this particular case. 
It's kind of institutional economics. I find that that it's very, very personal now, Rob. I mean, so for both Arjun and I, and literally for anybody living in this country, it is impossible for this not to be very, very personal. Um, I counted that there were three days in the last month when I have not received notice of the death of someone I either knew or loved very much. Uh, and I, I mean this sincerely. This is not just us, this is everybody that we know. So there is a kind of collective trauma at the moment. Uh, of, of, of just literally waiting to see what fresh horrors tomorrow's WhatsApp will bring. Um, I, I dread calls from people that I know who I haven't heard from in a while because I know what it is, always. I mean, in the best circumstances, it's someone needing oxygen or a hospital bed in a hurry, right? And most of the time, it's actually just some, the news of somebody dying. Um, it's, it's a culling of the uh, old, the, the weak, and people who are vulnerable in other ways, with lung disorders and with asthma and, and conditions like that. It is, it's cruel. It's really, really hard to live through. You know, for me, when you were talking about how you see this ending and the kinds of solutions, I'm working entirely this month, I think, with a colleague in the United States, with an American, to try to put ideas to the Biden administration that they can actually work on. Um, that are not merely just the kind of politically expedient uh, signals that supporting the TRIPS waiver in its narrow, in a very narrow form gave uh, the kind of bump it gave the Biden administration, but more than that, things that actually get things done to put vaccines on the table for us, right? Um, and I think that one way this could end is somehow magically the U.S. really reversing the course of 25 years of of industrial and diplomatic policy by forcing these companies to finally do the thing that it needs and that the world economy and people need, right? But the other way I think that it could also work, which is I think not something outside the realm of consciousness, is that what happens is it, let's say the, the, the Western pharmaceutical industry doesn't play ball, that the Biden administration actually doesn't ever capitulate, right? Whatever this death count leads to. I think what happens then is that the Western pharmaceutical industry is is not entirely replaced, but it's it's there is an alternative that's created, which is the combined industries of Russia, China, Cuba, India, Brazil, Vietnam, Thailand, and all of these other places who figure out in desperation a way to make things work and keep their people alive through this pandemic, and in effect, in that process, create an alternative to the Western pharmaceutical system to go to get life-saving products from, seriously. Well, this, uh, I, I think, you know, they always say hindsight is twenty twenty. I think that's, uh, how would I say, that's an exaggeration. But when you look back, you can see these concerns. I think we talked about before, uh, John le Carre's novel, The Constant Gardener, was all about Africa and intellectual property rights in, this, in the suffering that conforming to that system implied. Uh, there's a great deal of... I, I'll just tell you about a personal anecdote. I once went to a birthday party at the House of Lords in England. And I'm sitting at a table, and I asked all these people, you know, elder wise men, wise women type, what, what do you guys do? Almost all of them were on the boards of pharmaceutical companies. I said, okay, what is it that you do inside that? You know, it's just like a cocktail party's birthday celebration. And they said, oh, that's easy. The one guy stood up and said, this is, that's easy. What you do is you open a subsidiary in the United States. You, you go there and you make things that are so profitable you can cross-subsidize and build market share all around the rest of the world. And everybody agreed with him. They're all nodding their heads. And I'm the American sitting there thinking... How would I say? And we're getting soaked as taxpayers, and our healthcare system is ranked 38th in the world, and it costs almost double. And you know, you can throw the insurance industry in for their taste of that too. But it's just—it feels like a madness that was growing, even within the United States. But it's now. I, I mean, let's talk geopolitics. It's threatening to discredit American leadership because it can't respond to the public good. I think I find that quite quite daunting. The stakes are quite high for your uh, when when you challenge the Biden administration, higher than they know. That's why I started with my question to Arjun on: Is their reluctance going to lead to? a whole system of competition 
not only in this sector, but in others. I, I don't know. I, we can't know. But, but these, are, these are very powerful, powerful challenges. I've, I'm reading a book right now called Somebody Else's World, I think it's called, by Patrick uh, L. Smith. Now it goes by Patrick Lawrence. Someone I've never met, but it's about how the East-West interaction was, a, I'll say, among other things, a clash of philosophical systems and the common good. The we of Muhammad Ali had completely been, which am I call, eradicated from what was considered a legitimate perspective on social organization and design. I, I think, I think, I guess what I, I want to encourage the two of you to stay on it. You're making a huge contribution. You're made by illuminating this, by envisioning possibilities, by sharing the vulnerability in your suffering, you're making a huge contribution. And the New York Times, places like The Guardian, every, people, people good-hearted people are rising to the things that you're illuminating. Thanks, Rob. That's the hope in any case. So, and it's what we have to do. Yeah. That's certainly the case, Rob. Good people everywhere actually recognize good arguments that are, as you just said, simple, rational, and logical, right? And humane. Well, I guess as is my, uh, my custom, if there are last thoughts, I have a song for you to close today's uh, proceedings. It came to my mind about 20 minutes into this conversation. It's by a band called Credence Clearwater Revival. The name <laughs> of the song is Who'll Stop the Rain? <laughs> and that's a tribute to you today, Arjun, and the, and the cyclone. But I love the first verse, and that, that also I thought was germane. It says, long as I remember the rain been coming down, clouds of, clouds of mystery pouring, confusion on the ground. Good men through the ages trying to find the sun, and I wonder, still I wonder, who stopped the rain? Thank you both. Lovely, Rob. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Rob. That's lovely. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking but I'll know my song well before I start singing.